0: And it's so good to see you. So good to see you. Beautiful September weekend. And uh, hey, uh, those of you who are uh, worshiping with us from our other campuses, from uh, Knapp Street, East Paris, and Kentwood, as well as those of you who join us online, I'm so thankful that we get to jump into part two today of this uh, four part series. I think it's going to be a really important series for us, just called uh, Navigating Emotions. And uh, let me begin by talking about one of these things. Any of you remember these? They're called newspapers. Well, this should be one of our greatest sources of news, but uh, if I could take you back to the day, uh, often a newspaper would print something, and then later on they would find out there was a certain level of uh, inaccuracy, they got something wrong, and they would have to print a retraction. Do you remember those? A couple days later, you know, we said that, it was uh, actually this. Well, uh, I have a retraction from something I said last weekend, so here we go. Last weekend, talked about the four primary emotions, anger, sadness, fear, and desire. I get home from church. I sit down for lunch with my dear wife, Chris, and it's that time when she says something like, hey, uh, good job today, and she didn't. (laughs) We sat down to lunch, and she said, I have a bone to pick with you, and I went, this feels like it's going to be unpleasant, and it was. Do you remember a certain scenario that I painted last week about like a husband who thinks he's gonna be late and he's pacing and simmering as his wife is trying on different outfits? Do you remember that story? Yeah, so does she. (laughs) Now, half of that story was incredibly accurate. The Half of the story that was accurate was my capacity to pace and simmer as I wait for her to get ready. However, she thought that I might have led you to believe that she is late and she is never late. She is punctual, she is on time, which makes my side of the story even worse. That as I'm pacing and as I'm simmering, no, 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 it's not because we're going to be late, it's because I think there's a chance that we might be late and she is always punctually on time. Please receive this retraction so that marital harmony can be restored to my household. See, not only is Chris punctual, she's forgiving. She's kind. She's gracious. She's she's, she's generous. She's thoughtful. She's caring. She's conscientious. Consci- I can't read her handwriting. Uh. <laughs> so, all right. Today, today we turn our attention to, uh, to sadness. And I want to begin by showing you uh, a picture that I just, I just absolutely uh, love. And it's this picture. It's my, my grandparents, uh, my grandpa is holding my daughter, Sarah. Now, Sarah is now in her mid-30s. And so this picture's got to be like, what, like, you know, 35 years old. And my grandparents lived in the state of Wyoming, and they drove uh, to Michigan. And so here's this picture of them holding their great-granddaughter, which is just a cool, cool picture for me. And um, this, my grandma and grandpa, this is my my mom's mom and dad. Now, uh, I've mentioned over the years that I lost my mom when I was in middle school. Uh, Mom died in an automobile accident when I was in the seventh grade. But this was a multifaceted loss, meaning I lost my mom, my dad lost his wife, and they lost their daughter. Two kids, a boy and a girl, my mom, and then my Uncle Bill, so they lost their only daughter. And quite frankly, particularly for my grandpa, Ernie, Ernie and Crystal, for my grandpa Ernie, I think I think it affected him in a way more deeply than it affected me. Now, when you're in middle school and you lose a parent, this is one of the most defining events of your life. But today, uh, I think about losing my mom from from time to time, but it's not like it's always there. It's just not. But Ernie... My grandpa, I think it was always there. I think he grieved the loss of his daughter till the day he died. What are you supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with our losses? How do you navigate sadness, And uh, something uh, about our Bible, our Bible does not sugarcoat sadness and suffering. In many respects, your Bible is a book of tears. Check out these uh, song lyrics with me. It's uh, Psalm chapter thirty-one. King David of Israel writes, "Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weary with. My eyes grow weary with sorrow. My soul." and body with grief. My soul and body with grief. It's like it's a holistic, whole body experience. And King David of Jerusalem just kind of sets this out there in this song. That's, that's from Psalm 31. Uh, Psalm 6, he writes, All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. This guy... Is a mess. He's undone. He's vocalizing, verbalizing this sense of deep, deep sadness. Now, uh, a technical, technical term for the day, the genre is, is called lament. Uh, lament. There's like 150 psalms in the book of Psalms in your Bible. So many of them have this aspect of lament. It's kind of like things are not all right and I am not okay. It's, uh, it's lament. And the lament psalms, they don't, they don't solve our sadness. They, they don't remove our grief. But I think they give us a, a handle. Uh, they, they can serve as a guide For navigating sadness, grief, and tears. To live life is to experience losses along the way. No one's exempt, no one gets a pass. To live is to lose. Losing a friend in a terrible accident, losing a baby through a miscarriage. But then there's like job loss and the loss of income that was attached to that job. Someone experiencing job loss sometimes goes, I just realized, I just erased half of my social network. That is half of my friend group. I never realized it was attached to the office or to the job site or to my client base. And so it's not just the loss of it, a job. It's the loss of them, the people that I connected to. What what are we to do with our losses? How are we to navigate sadness? It's, It's a high school athlete, a college athlete that has a shoulder injury and they lose their season. And if they're a senior... This might be at one play, and they're done. What do we do with our losses? How do we, how do we navigate a sense of sadness and loss and letting something go? And sometimes it's the loss of somebody's affection. They're still around, but uh, someone you were going with, and you hear those words, you know, I, I don't love you anymore. Sometimes you thought that you had a chance of marrying this person Sometimes it's someone you're married to. What do we do with our losses? How do we navigate sadness? Now, there's no section of the Bible that goes, okay, this is what sadness is. This is how to deal with it. This is how to make it go away. It's far too complex for that. But we are not left without guidance as to how sadness can be navigated, and through the four reflections that I share today, two of them from that song, uh, Psalm 6, and two of them elsewhere in the Bible. I just hope that it gives us a handle, it gives us some guidance in how to process sadness, and for some of us, how to accelerate the road to healing. And so four different reflections today on the emotion, navigating the emotion of sadness. And the first reflection I've just called uh, expressing sadness. Expressing sadness. By expressing sadness, I mean that when you are experiencing sadness, recognizing it in yourself, calling it out in yourself, and perhaps expressing it to somebody else in your world, expressing sadness. So... Let's go back to that song, that lament song, Psalm chapter 6. And I've just picked three of the verses here uh, to take a look at. And I just want you to to listen. I just want you to feel what King David is expressing. So verse 2 of Psalm 6, he goes, Have mercy on me, Lord. God, have mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. This dude is really shaken up. And the very next verse, verse 3, he goes, my soul is in deep ang- ang- anguish. And then this blurt, kind of like, how long, Lord? How long? It's just like a sudden, like, how long? Like, enough is enough. <laughs> there is no quick fix. In the first part of verse 6, he says, I am worn out from my groaning. That word groaning it's just like an inarticulate moan. <laughs> he can't put words to it, but it's this deep sadness that verbalizes itself like in a groan. And he says, I'm worn out from my groaning. My friends, deep grief, deep loss is exhausting. You feel like it zaps your energy, zaps the life out of you. And here the king of Israel says, man, it's worn me out. I'm worn out from my groaning. And the last half of verse six, all night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Now this is hyperbole, It's exaggeration for emphasis. All night long, I flood my bed with uh, weeping. I drench my couch with tears. Today, we would say something like, uh, I cried my eyes out. That's the way we would express that today. I want you to notice something, and that is that King David is expressing his sadness. Not only does he feel these dark emotions, he says it out loud. He writes it down. He puts a music background behind it. This is a it's a song. There is a a score that is behind these words. And he shares it with others. Just reflection number one: sadness sadness is to be expressed. Express your sadness, at least to yourself. Often to another person, a friend or group of friends. It is healthy to express sadness. Now, uh, last week, uh, if you were here last week, we um, had these little cards that we uh, handed out on your way in. It just has like this wheel of emotions, mad, glad, sad, excited, afraid, ashamed. Mad, glad, sad, excited, afraid, ashamed. A lot of mornings when I wake up in the morning, feel my heart's kind of messed up. I don't know what's going on. I write down six words in my journal, mad, glad, sad, excited, afraid, ashamed, and force myself to circle one just so that I can begin to deal with what's going on inside before I inflict myself on the world around me. And so uh, these cards are available this weekend at each of our campuses. You can find them like at our welcome centers on the way in and the uh, next steps. If you didn't get one last week, or if you want to grab some for your family or for friends. So let's just say uh, it's a Thursday morning. It's a six o'clock in the morning, little breakfast place. Four guys gather for their men's group on a Thursday morning. And uh, one guy pulls the card out and says, all right, uh, mad, glad, sad, excited, afraid, ashamed. Let's start to the dealer's left. Mike, pick one. Mad, glad, sad, excited, afraid, ashamed. And Mike goes, oh, okay, if I have to. Uh, this week, I, I, honestly, I'm I, I just really dealing with some sadness. You oh, really, do, do you know why? He says, yeah, I know why. This week is the week we closed on the sale of my grandparents' cottage up north. And I drove away from the sale of the cottage, and I was totally unprepared for the wave of sad emotions I would experience because that place was a pain in the neck. My grandparents had it. They would have us cousins up there during the summer. Great memories there. But then when they passed, it went to our folks, and it was used less. And now us cousins, we're scattered all over the place. He says, here was the problem with the cottage. Everybody liked the idea of the cottage. Nobody wanted to take responsibility for it, to manage it, to keep the place up. And it's an old place. We decided that it was time to sell it, and we sold it. I'm just feeling kind of sad. That's stupid, isn't it? A guy across the table who almost never talks goes, no. Because you think people matter, things don't. But things get attached to memories. And memories are attached to people. He says, no, dude, I would experience grief over that. It's like the passing of an era. It's like the passing of an era you grieve Dude, you might feel like you sold a family member last week, but just sitting around a table and going, you know, I'm feeling kind of bummed this week. We, it's expressing sadness, and it's healthy. Or, or follow a woman to a wedding, a joyful occasion. It's her niece's wedding, and there in the front row is her brother. her brother's daughter, brother and brother's wife, and there behind them, row two, is her mom and and the empty chair next to her mom they lost her dad like 12 years ago and she thought she thought you know we, we we're done with the grieving process for losing dad and then you show up to an event a wedding where someone's supposed to be there and rather than mom and dad it's mom in the empty chair they transition from the, uh, from the wedding to the reception, and then she's out on this little patio at the reception, and her sister-in-law walks out and goes, man, you look like you're deep in thought, and she says three words. Three words is all she needs. I miss dad. <laughs> and you think you're over a grave, and then you get hit by this little wave at a family event, I miss dad. Just those three words, I miss dad, it verbalizes sadness. It vocalizes sadness. It expresses sadness. This is what King David does in Psalm 6. It is the message of the songs of lament. This is what I'm feeling. This is how I'm, it's messing with me. I'm losing sleep. I'm crying over this. It's not going away fast. There's no quick fix. It verbalizes, vocalizes, expresses sadness. Now, uh, I I know not all of you have like school-age kids, but some of you do, so uh, uh, indulge me for a moment. Uh, Let me say something about parenting. Your kids will experience loss, and sometimes it just seems so small. third grader, a friend, their best friend, their best friend in the third grade moves to a different school or moves to a different city or moves on to other friends. (laughs) And your third grader is just sad. Now what you might be tempted to do is to go, oh, you'll make other friends. That's true, they will. And yet in that state, but oh, you'll make other friends, we might inadvertently be diminishing sadness. We might inadvertently be saying, Losses don't matter, and losses do matter. When we have people that move into our life that we get close to, and they move out of our life, that leaves a mark. And it could be the sadness of the third grader is more mature than our, oh, you'll make other friends. Maybe just, oh, sorry, man, that's, that's got to be Disappointing. That's gotta be disappointing. See, I have a theory that someday we will be able to walk through large losses well because we've dealt with the small losses well. Grieving well about the little stuff, I think preps us for grieving well about the big stuff. Express your sadness. There is an alternative And it's just good for me to present the alternative to expressing your sadness. (laughs) Grow numb to your sadness so you don't have to feel it. Listen, we numb ourselves to pain. It can be done through drugs or alcohol. It can be done through busyness. I just stay so busy, I don't have to feel the disappointments of life or the sadness of life. I just want to caution you about numbing yourself out to sadness. Uh, Brene Brown, is popular like TED Talk speaker and author, uh, Brene Brown is uh, popular for saying, uh, you cannot selectively numb. You know, You know what she means by that? When Brene Brown said, you cannot selectively numb, this is what she's saying. Your brain and your heart do not have the ability and the capacity to numb one thing and not numb another thing. Meaning this. As you numb yourself to pain, you simultaneously numb yourself to joy, laughter, and happiness. You may effectively numb yourself to pain, but in the process, you might wake up one day and find out that you're numb at your daughter's wedding. You've numbed yourself to your mom or dad's retirement party. You find yourself numb at your son's graduation. Or you find yourself numbed out when you hold your child or grandchild for the first time. The heart does not have the capacity to selectively numb. Numb yourself to pain. You might not feel the acute pain, but you will also numb yourself to joy, happiness, and laughter. Numbing is a dangerous thing if we desire to be fully alive. But even mentioning happiness, joy, and laughter, it kind of takes us to our next reflection, reflection number two, which is just more than sadness. Express sadness, feel sadness, but please feel more than sadness. Can I get you to read the three words with me out loud? Ready? More than sadness. Now, I want to do something. I want to return to that lament song, song, six, Psalm 6, and there's just like this radical turn, this extraordinary emotional turn that you find in that short song. And it has to do with the writer, King David, experiencing sadness, but experiencing more than sadness, not just sadness. And okay, so verses 8 and 9, you'll find this. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my weeping. And the next verse, verse 9. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. The Lord has heard both my tears and my prayers. Now, in this radical turn in Psalm 6, the song does not move from sad to happy. The song moves from sad to hopeful. Can I say that again? The song doesn't move from sad to happy. It moves from sad to hopeful. What you have now is it's like this large platter of sadness, but there's a hefty side order of trust that's with it because our hearts are capable of experiencing multiple and sometimes contradictory emotions at the same time. My friends, it is possible to be in deep sadness and also to experience joy. The joy doesn't necessarily erase the sadness, but it can be a kind of joy that God can give in and around and through the sadness, express sadness, but there needs to be more than sadness. Open your hands to release the sadness over what you lost and keep your hands open to be able to receive the healing or whatever good gift God would place in your hands. So uh, there's a little drill that, I walk through personally, and it's just three words that I use to differentiate between like levels of what I'm experiencing. I use these, and I think maybe this might be helpful uh, for some of you. And the three words are these words, disappointment, discouragement, and despair, and trying to make a difference between them. Disappointment. Disappointments are common in life. If you want to have no disappointments, then never have any expectations about anything or anybody at any time. But in order like, to be alive, you envision something, you kind of expect something. And so uh, disappointments are common in life and they are supposed to come and go. Uh, disappointment, you apply for a job at work wanting to move from one position to another and they pick someone else. Just go, man, I'm disappointed by that. Uh, you were going to go to Chicago, downtown Chicago with the kids, a couple of days over Labor Day, do the museum thing. You wake up on a Friday morning, Labor Day weekend, and two kids are violently ill with flu-like symptoms and you call the trip off. That's a disappointment. You have affection for somebody that it turns out doesn't have affection for you. It's disappointing. They're supposed to come and go. But sometimes they come and stay, and that's discouragement. Discouragement is where disappointment moves in and then kind of like camps out, sets up a tent in your backyard, and just kind of camps out for a while. And I need to, okay, Jeff, your your disappointment, they're come and go. Now it's reached discouragement. Despair is much darker. Despair is that place where you are no longer capable of envisioning a hopeful future. When you start to despair, it's when you look into the future and there's no hope You're incapable of envisioning a hopeful future. Do everything you can to stay out of that space. So uh, Wednesday afternoon, in my office, I met with a father and a counselor. I I wanted to test drive this material. And so the father that I met with, he and his wife lost their college-age son just a couple years ago. And the counselor, her name is Sarah, and she like walks with people through loss and, and grief. And so I have the, the dad, who's real raw, recent loss, and then the counselor who assists people, just kind of test driving the material. And when I started talking about more than sadness, uh, the counselor, whose name is Sarah, she said, what I encourage people to do is to feel their sadness, but not to, not to wallow in it and not to get stuck in it. So one of the practices she advises with this is like, okay, you've got 20 minutes. Sit down and for 20 minutes obsess over what it is you lost. And after 20 minutes say, okay, time to go for a walk. <laughs> time to go meet friends for lunch. What that does is it gives permission to experience sadness but not only sadness. And it is possible that over time God will diminish the Acute pain of the sadness. Do not be shocked if you begin to experience levels of joy and peace and laughter. Don't erase the sadness, but are in and around and through the sadness. Psalm 6 does this for us. The Lord has heard my prayer. I don't think help has arrived yet. I don't think his situation has changed. But for King David, his perspective had changed. Experience sadness, but more than Sadness. Reflection number three, I think this is very important. You're not alone in your sadness. You're not alone in your sadness. I think it's important because sometimes if you get really, really walloped by something, it can feel, I am the only one who has ever felt this way. It's not true, but it feels that way. There's something about loss that can be terribly isolating. So I think it's important to remember that we're not alone in our sadness. Now, it was over uh, 30 years ago, uh, author Nicholas Walterstorff, who wrote this book. It's called Lament for a Son, and it is small, it's like a quarter of an inch thick. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff lost, he lost his son in a climbing accident, Eric in a climbing accident. It was a Grand Rapids guy at the time, I believe uh, taught either at Calvin or Calvin Seminary, and uh, son was like graduate school age in Europe. And in this book, he doesn't fix grief. He doesn't tell you how to get out of grief. It's not a how-to book. All he does is chronicles his emotions and reflections, and it is powerful. I mean, this is, this is one of the pages. He says... Uh, He says, innocent questions make me wince. Will the family all be home for Christmas? What do I say? Uh, Yes, I say, we'll all be home. Hey, what are your children doing now? I go down the list. Amy, Robert, Klaus, Christopher. But I omit one. Do I call... Attention to the omission? Or do I let it pass? Hey, how many children do you have? What do I say, four or five? A five, I usually say. Sometimes I explain, sometimes I don't. (laughs) End of paragraph. It was C.S. Lewis who said, uh, We read to know that we're not alone. I don't know how many copies of this thing I've given away over the years. Just to let people know at, at, at the appropriate time when they're at a place where they can work through a few pages, just to let people know you're not alone. You're not alone in your grief. Others have experienced what you experience. Now, it's important to remember like people like Nicholas Waltersdorf and his family have grieved too. Let me take this next level. I think it's important for us to remember about the Christ. Our Lord. Jesus Jesus has lots of titles. The Lamb of God. uh, The Son of God. The Son of Man, the Alpha and Omega, kind of like the first letter and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. We would say the A to Z. There's another title for Jesus Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes, there's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah the prophet is as this picture of the Messiah, what will happen when he comes. And this is the description he gives of the coming Christ. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And when Jesus arrives, we see it. There's Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up. The whole household is in grief. And in John chapter 11, you have the shortest verse in your Bible. Jesus wept. man of sorrows. He cries over the loss that his friends are experiencing. Uh, what was celebrated on uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus is on a donkey. He's riding toward Jerusalem. When the city comes into view, Jesus starts to cry he's looking toward the city of jerusalem and he goes if only if only you know, i wanted to gather you like a hen gathers chickens under her wings and you wouldn't come to me jesus weeps over the city of jerusalem man of sorrows the event of the arrest of Jesus, the, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus goes to an olive orchard. It is called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells his closest disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, he says, listen, stay here with me. He said, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. This is killing me. <laughs> Just, guys, stay with I need some friends close. Man of sorrows. This is so important. This is so powerful because we do everything we can to avoid pain, to avoid sadness, to avoid sorrow, to avoid grief, and to avoid tears. Jesus embraced it. He walked toward it. He came here and experienced every human emotion we would experience, including abandonment, betrayal, Desertion, mockery, and pain. Man of sorrows. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think he loves you very much <laughs> to walk toward this and to embrace this the way that he did. There's an a old school hymn. We used to sing this one in a little church I grew up in. Uh, I think the name of the hymn was Hallelujah, what a savior. Opening lines, opening lines, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. One of Jesus' titles is man of sorrows. What am I saying? You're not alone in your sadness. And Jesus embraced it for us. So uh, one, one one last reflection in how do you navigate sadness? And the last reflection is just what I'm calling an end to sadness, an end to sadness. Because there are just some things that go so deep, sometimes we think, I don't think I'm going to ever totally get over this. I mean, back to my grandparents and, my, and my, my, my grandpa, Ernie, I don't think he really ever got over grieving the loss of his daughter. But it's, it's not just the people who die. There are some wounds that may have gone so deep That we go, look, I, I have Jesus. Jesus gives me joy. The Holy Spirit gives me peace. But Jeff, honestly, I don't think I'll ever totally get over this or outrun this or get past this. So there's an image here of a redwood forest. I chose this image Carefully and reflectively, and what I want to mention is something called something called the new creation, and it's important for you to know about. It's just, it's just remembering where we are in the story. Uh, page one of our Bible, God begins to create. The Creator creates and everything is good. That's the statement that is using. And God saw all that it has made, and it was good, 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 only good. Beautiful, pristine, uh, pristine creation. Uh, human beings walking with their God in harmony. That's chapter one. Chapter two is the fall. I mean, chapter two of our story is the fall. There's rebellion, and now it's, it's not. We still have some of the beauty, right? But it's like something's messed up with everything. Something's broke. It's beautiful and it's also broken. Something's broken in every family, in every hospital, in every school, with every form of government, in every church, and in every human heart. It's like something's messed up with everything. This is the fall, chapter 2. Chapter 3 is redemption. Jesus comes to restore and redeem all that which was broken At the fall, he started the work but didn't finish it. The final chapter, chapter 4, this is what you would find in the last two chapters of your Bible, is the new creation. Did you know that? Did you know that? That there will be a day in the future, it says God will make a new heaven and a new earth and totally restore and reclaim all that was lost and broken at the fall, and I go, okay, this new creation. What is it supposed to look like? I just want to read about beautiful trees and about pristine, unpolluted streams and uh, wildlife. What does the new creation look like? This is a description we get in Revelation 21:4, the next to the last chapter of your Bible. He will wipe. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. It's kind of like, no, 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 no. That whole system of brokenness is now gone. This is the picture of the new creation. God will wipe all tears from our eyes. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. What we're having described for us there is this. Tears do not get the final word in our story. Sadness is not the final chapter in our story. Very next verse, uh, chapter 21, Revelation 21, 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making, what? I am making, help me finish it, everything new. It's kind of like John the apostle is hearing this revelation, seeing this, and it's like God says, excuse me, you're taking notes, aren't you? I mean, check out the second half of the verse. Then he said, write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. John, write it down. You're taking notes, right? Write it down. Why write it down? We we write things down so we remember them. (laughs) We write things down because we need to recall them. John, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Sadness will not get the final word. There will be a day when there is an end to sadness. Now, knowing that probably won't erase your grief. But it might give you a hopeful grief. It might give you a trusting grief. It may just give you a sadness that is tempered by the fact that in the end, Sadness will not win. That our creator will bring about a day when there is an end to tears. Do you want that to be true? No, no, not do you believe it's true. Do Do you wish it were true? Do you want it to be true? Do you want there to be a day when somehow God will restore all that which is broken in each and every person? Say, well, Jeff, you know, you have to prove to me that there's a God and you have to prove to me that, like, the resurrection of Jesus actually happened because that kind of seems tied to this whole thing. No, 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 that's step two. That's the evidence. That's step two. Step two is the evidence. Step one is, do you wish it were true? Do you want it to be true? Is there not something in your heart that cries out, God, please, someday fix this and me. (laughs) See, because when you want it to be true, when, it's, when you hope it's true, at least then you have the motivation to explore the evidence. Is God out there? Did Jesus come back? But I, I think in most human hearts, there is just this knowledge that something has gone badly wrong, and there's this hope that someday God will restore and reclaim, and redeem all that is broken. And so in the meantime, uh, we pray. Gracious God, please do in me, gracious God, please do in me the work that can only be done as I trust you through my tears. God, right now, here and now, in my sadness, please do the work in me that can only be done as I trust you through my tears. Gracious God, do the work in us that can only be done as we trust you through our tears. And may our gracious God carry you as you move into your week. May he meet you. May you sense his presence. May you experience his joy. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who boldly came here for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.